morning. The word today is from Jonah 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from the fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. May God bless the reading of his holy word. All right, keep the change. That's the phrase I'm going to look at this morning. Anybody use that phrase recently? I found myself not using that phrase much very recently because I don't have any change anymore. I don't use dollar bills anymore. So I'm actually not even sure if it's actually a thing that a lot of people still do. It's, um, it's kind of a, a, it's fading away. The use of of, uh, real bills and getting real change back. We're in an electronic payment society. But the expression still does bring up some questions to me. Um, It made me think this week even, what is change? Why did we begin to talk about coins as change to begin with? Um, I didn't find a good answer. The best answer I could find was that it was simply a short way of saying exchange. So that's as far as I got. Anyway, I used it as a kind of a bridge in my mind for this idea, what we're going to look at in Jonah this morning, of real change, heart change, life change. And so even the phrase, keep the change that I was thinking of in terms of a financial transaction, began to take on spiritual significance to me this week as I looked at Jonah chapter 3. Because what's happening in Nineveh is stunning, You see the lives of people who are far away from Israel, 
responding to the word of God instantaneously and changing before our very eyes. And so the challenge for the people of Nineveh and for Jonah, who's really the primary character still, even in today's message, and for us is how do we maintain the change that is happening for us? Or as I'm using, how do we keep the change in us that happens when God comes to us? So the question that I'm gonna look at and answer today with four answers is how do people really change? How does it happen? I'm gonna give you four answers and go through them pretty briskly. Uh, The first one is people change by getting a divine second chance. The second one is people change by hearing the word of God. The third one is people change by repenting and turning from their sin. And fourthly, people change when they see the great compassion of God in their life. Divine second chances, the power of the word of God, repentance, and the great compassion of God. Those are four things that just jump off the page, both for Nineveh and for Jonah, because again, Jonah's still the primary, he's got the spotlight on him in this story. And then ultimately for us too. So first I wanna talk about divine second chances. Who gets the second chance in this story today? Jonah. Jonah gets the second chance. Remember, this is, this is Nineveh's first time hearing the word of God. We're gonna get to them in a second. So this is still their first chance. This is Jonah's second chance to be changed, to be obedient. And the words are almost identical as the first one. You remember Jonah chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. At the beginning of chapter three, you get almost the exact same call, except one word is different. Second, God's word came to him a second time. You know, and if if we didn't have second chances in life, all of us would be up a creek. So part of the way that we change is by getting divine second chances. Or as we'll learn as we go throughout the morning, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, God never stops pursuing us. That's probably the biggest theme in the whole book is God's relentless pursuit of people, of sinful people through his grace and mercy. And so God knows we are sinful people with sinful hearts. He knows that we're under that curse and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet God continues to choose to pursue us over and over, even when we disobey, even when like Jonah, we literally go the opposite direction. So Jonah gets a call from God a second time. And like I said, it's very, it's almost exactly the same phrasing. Nothing changes in the call. Let's just think about that for a second. Think about all that Jonah did to get away from the call, all the disruption, all the change, all the turmoil. Literally a storm occurred on the, on the middle of the, the ocean to stop him from all the chaos that was happening. And yet despite all that change, God's call stayed exactly the same. God is faithful and consistent in what his purposes are. And no matter how much chaos we cause in the middle of those two calls, 
God's call remains the same. So I think it's a great little point here for us to consider of how little our sin actually tangibly affects God. Our sin grieves God. Our disobedience makes him very sad. It grieves him to his heart. It's offensive to him. But it doesn't change his call on our life. It doesn't change his purposes in the world. God has a plan to redeem the world and he chooses to use you and I to do it. And he continues to invite us over and over into it. So the next time you sin or do something really bad or royally mess up, just know that that doesn't change God's call on your life at all. He is radically faithful and consistent. and His plans for you are steadfast. God gives us second and third and fourth opportunities until our final breath. The offer to be obedient and to follow him always stands. It doesn't expire or go away. And again, I just, everything else in life seems to expire. Like why does milk only last two weeks? Like we've got to have better technology than that. Like we live in 2023 and milk still only lasts two weeks. Like, come on. God's faithfulness does not have an expiration date on us. Just like the promise of spring always delivers, so too does God's merciful call to the disobedient to call them to obedience always remains. He personally comes to us over and over. So change begins with God, not with you. That's a good way to put this here too. Because God is consistent and faithful, change begins with him, not with some new great strategy that you have. Again, Jonah wasn't looking for change. God was pursuing him and and inviting him into a merciful change of heart. And finally, in chapter three, Jonah says, yes, he accepts the change. Praise God. We'll get back to Jonah more next week on his ongoing saga with dealing with the change that God is offering him. For now, we're gonna pivot to a faraway nation, the nation of Assyria, and to this massive capital city of Nineveh, which has its own problems. And yet God still comes to them as well. His eye has been on them from the very beginning. So the second point of what brings about change in real people, it's the word of God. The power of the word of God changes lives. I mean, look what he's about to do in Nineveh. This story is just, Extraordinary. Let's just, let's focus on this for just a second. What does it actually look like to have change initiated in your life? What is the actual change process in you in terms of heart level? If you were to, if you wanted your life to be changed from the inside out, what does that kind of process look like? The kind of change that changes your whole outlook on life, your whole experience of life, the way you interact with people around you, the way you think and make assumptions about why the world is the way it is, if, if that were to radically change, what is it that begins that process? It's the word of God. On February 8th, 2023, at 10 a.m., a normal weekly chapel service began at a small college called Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Pretty obscure, small school. And this guy got up to preach the sermon like they do every week at this chapel service. It's a guy named Zach Meerkrebs. He was the assistant soccer coach 
who was also a leadership development coordinator for a missions organization. And he preached a sermon or a little chapel encouragement on becoming love in action from Romans chapter 12. And he gave his talk. He said it went fine. Um, but at, at the end of his sermon, no one came forward at the end of the service. And he, he, he texted his wife immediately after the service. And he said, quote, the latest stinker, I'll be home soon. That's what he thought of his message that morning. After his sermon, there was a, a gospel trio that came up and sang a song. And about 18 or 19 students hung around after the service to come and just spend a little bit of time in quiet prayer. They sat in clusters, a few along the wall, a few in their seats, a few at the foot of the stage, and they prayed. One student was a, a junior. His name was Zeke. He, he stayed for a little bit of the prayer time, and then after an hour, he left and went to his class or back to his dorm. And yet, after an hour, he realized that the other people still had not returned. So he went back to the chapel, and he started hearing people singing. And he said, quote, okay, that's weird. I went back up and it was surreal. The peace that was in that room was unexplainable. He and a few friends immediately left, sprinting around campus, bursting into classrooms with an announcement, quote, revival is happening. That was February, what date did I say? February 8th at 10 a.m. I'll get back to what happened at that campus in a little bit. But in Jonah chapter three, the prodigal prophet Jonah finally says yes to God and he travels from Joppa to Nineveh, a, a span of about 550 miles. It's typical that ships during that, during that time period would go about 20 to 25 miles a day. And so if that's the math that we're gonna do, it's gonna take him about a month to get from Joppa to Nineveh. So it's not like he just showed up the next day he had a month to think about this call. And when he gets there, it says that Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. It would take about three days to walk all the way through it. And it says he went about one day's journey into the city. And, and that's when he began to preach. He had just begun his journey, essentially, is what the, the text tells us in verse four. He just began it. He was just getting started. He didn't even really have time to warm up. He just was one third of the way into the city and he offers eight English words or you could, if you want to look at it in the original Hebrew, five Hebrew words, that's his sermon. Eight English words, five Hebrew words. Wouldn't you love a sermon like that? Praise God. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, end quote. That's the sermon. That's what God told him to say. God probably knew that's all he could get out of Jonah's mouth, I'm assuming. After all that, after all of Jonah's rebellion, after this massive storm, after a month-long travel, eight words is what God chooses to give the people of Nineveh. I expected a little bit more. <laughs> I would have expected the book of Isaiah to come out of Jonah's mouth. Or at the very least, like if you open up to the book of Acts, you see Peter giving these great, long, beautiful sermons. But he gets eight words to the people of Nineveh. Don't you think they need a little bit more 
specificity or a little bit more urging or a little bit more convincing. But what happens with that simple, small effort from Jonah? The people of Nineveh believe in verse five. It says they believe. Why? Because it doesn't matter how long the sermon is. It doesn't matter necessarily even if it has every single doctrine included in it. What matters is the effectiveness of God's word that lands on people exactly at the time they need to hear it. God's word is powerful beyond our wildest beliefs. I, I tremble at the thought of what God uses through his words. And that's why I walk up here with shaking knees every single Sunday, because I don't know what God is trying to speak to you necessarily, but I know he wants to speak through the power of his word. Isaiah 55, since I mentioned Isaiah a second ago, Isaiah 55 that says, just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, it doesn't matter the messenger. It doesn't matter necessarily the, the, the length of the sermon. It matters that it's the word of God being faithfully preached. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what Hebrews 4.12 says. So I, I legitimately think Jonah had no idea what was gonna happen. He gives those eight words and he says, that's my job. My job is done. And I think that's probably the best thing Jonah ever did in his whole life was give that eight word sermon. He said, God, this is what you wanted me to do. I did it. You do the rest. And you know what? That's not passive. That's not weak. That's actually faithful. That's humble. And that's allowing God to then step in. He was preaching judgment against a non-Israelite nation. I don't think Jonah necessarily had any intention of success. Well, he definitely didn't because we're gonna see his reaction next week. He had every intention that this would be a, a, a sermon of judgment, a sermon that would condemn the Ninevites, that would put them in their place and say, hey, you got, you got, you're getting what's coming for you because you're a sinful, wicked people. But God had other things in mind. God used a, a sermon of judgment to bring about a response of repentance and of contrition of heart. Verse three, it says that Nineveh was a great city. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but when it says here that, that Nineveh is a great city, you could look at that as saying it's a big city. Or the other way that the, that the language is used is that Nineveh was a great city to God. It was an important city to God. God loved Nineveh and he wanted his good purposes lived out there. And the same can be said for Salem and for all of our cities as well. The word of, the God, the word of God uniquely changes people. It always has and it always will. Um, just to give you another example real quick, John Wesley, who ironically was part of the, the founding of Asbury College, because it's a Methodist school. John Wesley, his story, um, 
was he was in a time of real deep despair where he didn't have any faith to really continue preaching. He was kind of done at his wit's end. And, um, and he opened up the word of God one day to the book of Romans. Particularly, he, was, I, he, had, he had the book of Romans open next to a commentary by Martin Luther, kind of commenting on the book of Romans. And this is what he said at 8.45 p.m., While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Even John Wesley, through the power of God's word, his heart was warmed and he was changed in that moment. So the third thing that changes us when God's word is spoken, specifically through God's word spoken, is it brings about repentance. And I know that's kind of a a big Bible word that you don't hear really anywhere else in the world now, but it basically just means to turn. And that's what we see here in the people of Nineveh, particularly through the king's edict. So the king catches on to hearing this from Jonah And he begins to speak up to the entire city. He issued a proclamation in verse seven. And what does he say to them? In verse eight, he goes on, among other things, after telling them to put sackcloth on on everybody, including the animals, which was a bit excessive, by the way. You didn't need to technically put them on the animals, but they did anyway. They were kind of covering all their bases. Um, It kind of just shows a little misunderstanding of how they understood what uh, uh, Israelite repentance was. They said, we're just gonna cover the animals anyway. So good to cover your bases. But in verse eight, he says, let everyone turn from his evil way. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. And just before that, he says, let them call out mightily to God, not to their God, but to God, to the God of Israel, the one that Jonah was speaking from. So repentance is what comes when the word of God is preached. Going back to Asbury, to that little chapel service where 18 or 19 students hung around after the service. You may say, what were they doing after that service? What were they praying about? Why did they stick around? And as there's been a lot of articles written about this the last few weeks, but one of them particularly by this guy named Tom McCall, who's a, who's a professor at the school, he says, When I came back to the chapel later that afternoon, I saw hundreds of students singing quietly. They were praising and praying earnestly for themselves and their neighbors and our world, expressing repentance, contrition for sin, and interceding for healing, wholeness, peace, and justice. They weren't there because they were filled with joy necessarily. I think that came with it but they stuck around and stayed primarily because they were being convicted with the reality that they needed to repent from sins, that they needed to give to God brokenness that was in their life, that they wanted to pray for the broken world that was around them. God's word through Romans 12, through that poor sermon that that guy gave, convicted them to repent and to go honestly before God and throw themselves before them. I really encourage you to to find some of these articles. Christianity Today has a few articles online you can find, but the stories are just remarkable. This chapel service went on for two straight weeks, 24-7, 
day and night. They rotated worship teams every two hours. They had people there helping people pray at the front of the service. Eventually, people flew from all over the world just to visit the revival or the awakening that was happening. It's remarkable. And even on our Bible study this week, Melissa was telling us that, uh, that some of the same spirit of the revival has now spread to other countries even. This is what the power of God's word spoken faithfully does. Simply and effectively by bringing people to God, giving them reason to repent of their sins and to fall headlong into his mercy. Just like what Nineveh was experiencing uh, here, that's what was happening at Asbury, recognition of sin, contrition of heart, awareness of the frailty of life, and a desire for dependency on God. Repentance is right at the heart of Jesus's ministry as well. When Jesus began his ministry, he said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe the gospel. Another author, Dane Ortland, says, Repentance and faith, if you had to combine them into one word, collapse. That's what a Christian does. You collapse into God's embrace by repenting and believing. It just shows a, a real evidence of humility in your life. St. Augustine 1800 years ago, said the top three most essential virtues for a Christian are humility, humility, and humility. And that's what repentance teaches us. That's what the Ninevites were discovering through God's word given to them. It's a stunning reversal. From the least to the greatest, it says, And even the animals, as I mentioned, everybody began to turn from their evil way and from their violence. And even from the king all the way to the bottom. It's a stunning, dare I say, revival or awakening in the city of Nineveh. And they even show their genuineness of heart by admitting in verse nine, who knows what God will do? They don't even necessarily know how God will respond to their contrition or to their repentance but the humility to say, who knows? Maybe he will turn and save us or maybe he won't, but they were voicing contentment even if they didn't receive God's mercy. But the last point, verse 10, and this is the same for us. If we are gonna change, we need to see the compassion of God lived out. And that's what the people of Nineveh saw. Verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. This is not a reactive God. This is not a a wishy-washy God. This is a God displaying his mercy because he really wants to display his mercy. And when he's able to show his mercy, he will pour it out extravagantly. And when he saw the, the slightest evidence of humility and repentance evident here, he poured it out. Micah 7 says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Our sin would judge us, but our repentance brings his mercy in waterfall form. 
Let me finish by, I'll just give you a personal story to finish because we're gonna approach the Lord's table here in just a moment. Um, but I was thinking this week about this idea of change. You know, what does it really mean to change, to have your heart changed? And the reality is, you know, there's different ways to think about it. In one, one sense, you have a moment like John Wesley did where you're, you have a, a moment where you change and you know you're never gonna be the same again. That's justification when you come to faith. But then the rest of the Christian life, even after that, is still ongoing change, daily repentance, turning over yourself to God, the, the process of sanctification, becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus. And wherever you are in that process, this sermon can apply either way. Um, but we had an experience over the last few weeks. Some of you know about this because I mentioned some in our Bible study. Some of you know because I kind of pulled you aside at some point in the last few weeks. But our family personally had had something that was trying for us in the last four months. A couple of months ago, our youngest daughter, Clara, we were feeling her neck one day and we found a bump on her, the side of her neck. This was in October. And so we've been, we've been going through the process with her doctors for months saying, what is this? All the while knowing that bumps on the side of the neck sometimes can be lymphoma or cancerous. So we went through our primary care doctor and we started kind of going down the list of going to an allergist, going to see you know, different specialists, doing a chest x-ray, doing um, all different types of processes. And the most recent one was she had an ultrasound where they, they did kind of a closer scan on the lymph node and they discovered that it was large, larger than normal, and there were other ones that were there. And so the suggestion of the ultrasound radiologist was you need to go to Boston Children's and talk to a lymph node expert. And lymphoma needs to be excluded. We need to, to zero in to see if that could be what it is. So you schedule an appointment weeks out. I mean, weeks after weeks. And so that's when we began to share with some of you um, in prayer for that. The, the, the appointment was scheduled for March 16th. On March the 1st, we got a phone call from the doctor and they said, we have an opening for tomorrow, March 2nd. Can you come? Sarah was in Philadelphia. <laughs> and so Sarah called and she said, I'm gonna come back. And yes, we're gonna take that appointment. So March 2nd was Thursday. We walk into this doctor's appointment, four o'clock Thursday. There's a one hour appointment with three different doctors, lymphoma, lymph node experts. And we say, we're gonna walk out changed one way or the other. You know, God, do what you want. You know, talk about being in a place of dependency. You have no choice. We walk through this one hour uh, examination and the doctors come back in the room at the end of the hour and they say, she's 100% fine. She's clear. Now, it's, it's interesting, so praise God, first of all, thank you. Um, but it's interesting how you, re how you respond to news like this. Um, I was telling some folks today even, you, just, you almost don't even know how to respond to the kindness and compassion of God in moments like that, especially in recognition that not everybody gets that kind of news. And we knew very well that you're walking around a hospital with a lot of sick children. But we've had folks the last few days say, you must be so relieved, which is true. There is an emotion of relief. But I think there's also a yearning in us for, we feel like this should change us in some real way, some tangible way. And I think that's, that's, that, that applies to all of us. How do you respond 
to the great compassion and mercy of God? How do you trust in him throughout this process? These four things we mentioned today, responding to the, to the kindness of the word of God, how he brings us to a place of contrition and weakness, and how he shows you his mercy and compassion. That's the call for each of us. And we just got to experience it in a really heavy, intense way in the last couple of months and in the last week. But as we approach the Lord's table, that's the invitation. How, how open will you be to, to have the change that God is offering you be part of your ongoing daily life and to be molded more and more into his likeness? So let me close us in prayer. I'm gonna invite the deacons to get ready to serve the Lord's Supper for us as we finish our service. But let me close us in prayer as we approach the Lord's table and we'll pass the meal out. Father, as we, as we remember from Jonah and Nineveh, um, we just see the power of your word to speak life into death, to bring us to a place where we realize that all change comes straight from you, that you continually pursue us, that your word does not return empty or void. And so I pray for each person here today that as they now spend a moment of reflection as the Lord's Supper is served, uh, that we would really see you for who you are as the change agent in the world, the one who pursues us in love and grace and who promises to never keep us the same, but transforms us into the truest version of ourselves so that we might be used for your glory. So Lord, speak to us during this time of the Lord's Supper now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.